With all of that said, I would ask that now we turn our attention to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. Several years ago, we purchased a house. Uh, We had already been living there and renting there for over four years, and by God's grace, we were able to purchase the home that we lived in here in Levitt Town, just on the other side of the town. And uh, during the time we'd been renting, my wife and I had discussed the fact that we didn't really like the layout. Actually, my wife didn't like the layout. She wanted something a little more open concept. And there was these closets that kind of separated the main dining room from our back extension room. And most of you are very familiar with the Levittown Cape. And she was ready just to have that block of three closets that were completely in the middle of everything removed from our life altogether. And we couldn't do anything about that, obviously, because we were renters. But then when we purchased the home, I decided it's worth investigating this. So as she went to the grocery store one day, I started poking around in the closet, and I kind of pushed a hole through the back of the wall and just wanted to see what's in there. And then I realized, wow, this is really flimsy. And then I kind of pulled the whole thing down. And before you knew it, like, there was not much left. I gutted all of what was in there. And she got back from the grocery store, and she was like, what happened to my house? Um... Well, I didn't really think this through very well. I didn't realize how much of a job this was going to be. So as we were working through it, um, we started realizing in order to do this, we have to make sure that this isn't holding up the ceiling. So uh, Al Piero came over, and he, we asked him, can you just make sure that like, I'm not going to break the whole house by taking this out? And he graciously looked at it. But in order to see, he had to then go to the middle of the room and then break a hole in the ceiling and then start to, you know, it's like that guy that was lowered down through the roof. Like, it's kind of like what was going on until there was this large gaping hole in the middle of the room to figure out if there was a beam there. And at that point, I realized, oh, yeah, all of this does have to come down. And, and all, also the floor all has to be replaced. And, wow, the whole wall over there has to be removed and redone. And it was this realization that I just got myself into something way bigger than I anticipated. I didn't count the cost first. But by God's grace, with the help of many of you, we did complete that project, and now it does look nice, and we do love what that looks like, and our renters, I believe, love it as well. Uh, But there are many projects that I have started that I have not completed. And there are uh, sometimes different reasons why I don't complete uh, complete things. Uh, There are countless times, for example, that I will start a book, And then I will realize either a few pages or a few chapters in that I have made a bad decision and that I do not have any desire to finish this book. And oftentimes I don't make it past the fourth or fifth chapter. And there are many other reasons why I don't complete things. The the first is that when I start a project like removing a closet where I don't realize what I'm getting into, I, I just don't have the knowledge before I start of what this project is actually all about. My lack of knowledge causes me to bite off more than I can chew. And the other main reason that I lose interest is that I have a lack of motivation that causes me to abandon ship mid-voyage, like a book that I put down. Uh, But today we are continuing our series in the Doctrines of Grace, and the big question that we are seeking to answer is this. Does God always preserve the salvation of his people? Another way to ask that question would be, do true Christians always persevere to the end? Or is it possible for a true Christian to lose their salvation? Or another way to put it, does God always finish what he starts? In order to answer that question, we are going to continue our format of just asking a lot of other questions to the Bible that will help us to arrive at an accurate and satisfactory conclusion. But before we move any further, I would just ask that you join me in bowing our hearts collectively before the Lord and asking that he would work through the word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, what a grateful 
uh, time we have had so far of worshiping you and thankful time that we have of acknowledging that you will hold us fast. I pray that today, Lord, as we continue to think on your word and to hear from your word and to rely upon your word and trust in you through your word, I pray that you would open our understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that today as we consider this very valuable and precious truth, that you do hold us fast, that you would help us to love you and reflexively show great thankfulness to you because you have done the work to save us and you will continue to do the work of holding us fast. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Over the past several weeks, we have been considering the doctrines of grace. Uh, Let me just quickly review for you what we have covered so far. At the beginning, we started by learning that God is sovereign over all things. And at this point, I think that you will probably always remember that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And then we considered the fact that all mankind is totally depraved, meaning that every part of who we are has been infected with sin, and this results in it being impossible for man to turn to God unless God first does a work of transformation in us. Then we learned about unconditional election, and that is the doctrine that explains that God chose a particular people from before time began based upon nothing but the good pleasure of his will. And then we learned about limited atonement that teaches that Christ came to redeem a particular people. He came for his sheep, his bride, the church. He died specifically to cover the sins of the elect, and every person for whom Christ died will be in heaven. And then last week, we covered irresistible grace, which teaches that the Holy Spirit draws the elect to salvation by giving them new birth and a new heart and new affections and the gifts of faith and repentance. And so today we come to the final piece of this salvation puzzle, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So our first question of the day is, what is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? And before we can ever even answer a question, we always need to make sure that we are defining our terms. And there is a great deal of confusion in our modern world about the word saint. Roman Catholics, of course, use this term as a reference to someone who has performed three miracles and has been canonized by the church into a position of reverence, which puts them in a category of being able to hear and answer your prayers. They believe in something called the merit of the saints, which is like a treasure chest full of their good works that you can have applied to your life if you just pray to them and seek to accept them. That they will help you get into heaven. That is not only unbiblical, that is blasphemous. Secular people sometimes throw this word around simply to mean that you are a very good person. One time several years ago, I was helping somebody who was stuck in the snow where they had parked in Queens, and parking in the snow is bad anywhere, but in Queens, oh my goodness. And so I'm trying to get this person out of their parking spot without bashing into the car in front or behind them, and finally we were able to maneuver them out onto the street, and after they finally got out there, uh, rolled down the window, and he just said, thank you so much, you're a saint. Now, they were actually right but not for the reasons that they imagined. Nobody becomes a saint by doing good works. Nobody becomes a saint because they are capable of doing something that you are not. The Bible refers to every single Christian as a saint. That word just means one who is holy or set apart. That image is just like God setting apart certain items in the Old Testament to be considered separate and dedicated to the Lord. If you are a saint, it means that he has dedicated you for the purpose of worshiping the Lord. He has set apart a people for himself 
for the purpose of worship. So if you are a Christian, you are a saint. And the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teaches us that all true Christians, all true saints will persevere. They will continue in faith throughout this entire lifetime. They will not fall away, but they will be preserved by the grace of God until the end. The second question that we're going to ask and answer today is, what are some distortions of this doctrine? Well, when understood correctly, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is one of the most beautiful and joy-producing and hope-invigorating truths that you could ever know. But when it is perverted and twisted, it can become one of the most dangerous tools in the hand of the evil one. Perhaps you've heard of the term, once saved, always saved, or eternal security. Typically, those terms are associated with a perverted form of this doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which treats salvation as nothing more than a fire insurance policy for your soul. It's the idea that as long as you've prayed a prayer or walked an aisle, then you can go on living however you want for the rest of your life and have assurance that you have been saved. I assume that you, like me, have spoken to people and asked them if they know the Lord, and they will say, oh, I'm definitely a Christian. And you can say something like, well, what does that mean to you? And they will respond by saying, well, I prayed a prayer when I was seven in a Sunday school class, and then I got baptized that Sunday afternoon, and I might not have been back to church, and I might be an alcoholic, and I might have had many affairs, but I know because of that one Sunday morning that I am a Christian. Well, that is not the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. That is an apparition. That is a false teaching. It's a vile distortion that has caused millions of people to happily march their way to hell with a smile on their face because they have been told, you have entered into an unbreakable contract with God, and therefore, no matter what you do, you are a Christian. No, that's not how this works. This disgusting aberration is grounded in easy believism, which is the idea that anyone and everyone who has ever simply prayed a prayer or that calls themselves a Christian is truly saved. Now, all true Calvinists and all true Arminians reject this doctrine. All true Calvinists and all true Arminians find this to be an evil expression of false comfort to those who are running as fast as they can to hell. Which leads us to our third question, quite nicely. Where do Calvinists and Arminians agree? As always, I like to find as much common ground as possible, and that is true also today. It's important to understand when we talk about perseverance, both Calvinists and Arminians agree that everyone who ends up in heaven will be there because they have persevered in the faith. That everyone must persevere in the faith in order to receive eternal life. And we agree that a person must fight sin and that faith without works is dead. And we agree that those who persevere to the end will be saved, as Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. And we believe that one of the necessary signs of life is growth, and we believe that a good tree will produce good fruit, and we believe that, there, that we were saved unto good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do, and we believe that only those who will continue in faith will actually go to heaven. We all believe these things, which leads us to our fourth question, where then do we disagree? Well, the biggest difference between the two forms of perseverance comes down ultimately to who causes us to persevere. Is it something that we conjure up from within ourselves, or is it the work of God who works in us to grow and mature and preserve us? To be clear, uh, this is one point where both the Calvinist system and the Arminian system 
are both completely consistent and logically coherent within themselves. So, for example, if you are a Calvinist, then you believe that you were saved by grace through faith alone. You believe that you were chosen by God and brought into his family by his will. You believe that Jesus came to purchase your redemption at the cross, and you believe that the Holy Spirit effectually drew you to salvation, and therefore it is logically consistent to think that God will continue to work in you to bring you to heaven. If God brought you in, he will keep you in. That makes sense. The Arminian is also consistent in saying that they believe that there is an island of righteousness within the heart of every person that allows them to choose God. And therefore, when God elected his people, he did so based upon his foreseeing of what they would do. And so God chose them based upon the fact that he knew they would choose God. And therefore, Jesus died for all people in the world in the same way, allowing all people to have equal opportunity to receive the blood of Christ, but most people for whom Christ died will end up in hell. And then if that is true, then it would also logically follow that anyone who hears the gospel and who does have their heart drawn by the Holy Spirit, that they can, of course, reject. Otherwise, all people would be saved. And if that is true, then the only way to get in is ultimately to get yourself in through decisionalism. And you do the work to be saved. Therefore, it is logically consistent that you could do the work to become unsaved. In order to explain the Arminian position to you, allow me to explain how it was taught to me. This is a little bit of my biography. When I was in high school, I was at a Christian school that was associated to the church that I grew up in, and I'm thankful for that school in many ways, but there were some things they taught that were inaccurate. And so one day we were in chapel, and my, my pastor of the church I grew up in, who was a very kind and loving man in many ways, but I believe was wrong in this issue, he said in the, in the, um, in the chapel service that we had, he said, if you ever get into a car accident, just make sure that you do not say a bad word before you die. Because if you do, you will not get into heaven. And now my brain was like exploding. I was like, I don't understand how this whole thing works. I thought I had the pieces put together. What in the world is going on? So I waited after the class service, and I said, Pastor Hubbard, can you just please explain to me how this whole salvation thing wor works and how it is that you can lose it? And I wasn't being facetious at all. I was concerned. I didn't know how it happened. And so he did this for me. He drew out on the marker board like this. He said, okay, here's a line. This line is salvation. When you are born, you start right here in the middle, and every time you sin, you fall shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter of the glory of God. And so as you're moving through your life, you're just moving down in this trajectory. And then at some point, you hear the gospel, and you repent, and whoosh, you're up here. And now you're above the line, and you are saved, and all your sin is forgiven. And everything that you did down here, this is all erased. But then what happens? Well, you're not going to be perfect, so you start to sin and sin and sin. You start making your way back down towards that line of salvation. And eventually, you reach that point where God's just not going to put up with it anymore, and you cross over, and you're no longer saved. And you can go pretty far down that. You can uh, walk back into the world, and eventually, maybe and hopefully, the Lord will grab your heart again, and you'll come back up here. And it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth throughout your life. I'm curious, how many people in the room came out of a Roman Catholic background? Yeah, many of us. I would say that probably the majority of us has some affiliation in the past with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, if that's true, then you're coming out of that background. The words that I just said are different, but that concept, that formulation, that drawing that he made for me should sound very familiar. 
This should naturally, naturally result in us in further questions such as, how many sins can I commit before falling away? Or does this mean that some sins are worse than others? Like, for example, he said, if you say a bad word, then you're definitely not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And I was thinking, I've done a lot worse things than that. Well, let's take that last, last question first. I think we can all agree that there are varying levels of sin. We can see that there is a difference in extremity between hatred and name-calling and murder. There seems to be an escalation from lustful thoughts to pornography to adultery. Is there a difference? Yes, there is a difference. There is a difference in terms of earthly consequences. But what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount is that when, when it comes to God and His eternal justice, that all of those sins are equally damning. Every sin, even the ones that we think are smallest and most socially acceptable, are worthy of an eternity in hell. And one of the sins that my children have most early on in their lives started to fall into is the sin of sneaking food from the pantry when they're not supposed to. And over and over and over, we have had to correct our children and discipline our children and train our children that that is not yours and you are not to do that right now where, you know, there's uh, obedience involved here. Do not go into the pantry unless you are permitted. Do not take food unless you are given. And you might think to yourself, well, from a human perspective, that is a comparatively small sin. But imagine the fact that when in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve snuck food from the tree, they plunged all humanity under a curse forever. God takes all sin seriously. So then how many sins could one commit before falling away? Well, James chapter 2 verse 10 really helps us answer this question by telling us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, this means that necessarily, if you can lose your salvation by sinning, then you would lose your salvation every single time that you sin. There is no slow movement back down towards that line. It is a complete and utter drop-off every time you have the slightest thought of bitterness or envy or sinful anger or lust or pride or selfishness or unkindness of any kind. You might say, well, that seems like a bit of a straw man argument. How would an Arminian scholar answer those questions about how many sins or which particular sins must be committed in order to lose your salvation? And to that, I would say, you are somewhat correct. But the problem is, no matter how hard I have looked, I have never actually found a scholar who was willing to answer those questions. Surely somebody has. I just can't find it. But the biblical point still stands. If one sin results in full guilt then every sin is disqualifying under the Arminian viewpoint. So let me just pause and say to anyone in the room who holds an Arminian perspective, I am preaching these doctrines for two reasons. One of them is I believe that they are true. And the second one is I know that they are good for you. Do you realize how freeing it is when you know that God will hold you fast? I grew up in a system where I thought I could lose my salvation and just to be honest, I believe I did, I thought I did lose my salvation 100,000 times before my 15th birthday. There is no peace in a system like that. It results in always thinking that God is looking for a way to cut you out of the family will. But knowing that God will hold you fast results in comfort and joy and zeal and vigor and strength for your Christian walk. It does not make you lazy or complacent. It causes you to delight in the one who saved you and who loves you enough to hold on to you.
Now, up to this point, I have showed you what I believe is incorrect and what I believe should be rejected. However, do not accept anything that I have said so far based on that or based on the log logical arguments that we have made because our theology is not ever grounded in logic. We base our theology on the teachings of Scripture, and yes, we do believe that they will then comport with this scrutiny of logic, but we find our understanding of what truth is from the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Which brings us to several questions now regarding what the Bible actually says about perseverance. Question number five, does the Bible teach that God finishes what he starts? If you still have your finger in Romans chapter 8, look there with me at the golden chain of redemption once again found in verses 29 through 30. Now as I read through these verses, you should be very familiar with them by now. Pay close attention to the unbroken chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he has also glorified, which means taken to heaven. Notice that everyone that is predestined will be in heaven. This gives us a clear guarantee that God will always finish what he starts. He will never fail to complete his mission of salvation. He will not abandon you like I might abandon a subpar book, and he will not give up on you like I might give up on a complicated project. All that he predestines, he also glorifies. That is a home-run argument that should put the nail in the coffin of debate, but for the sake of being thorough, let's continue to think through this through various passages that reveal God's love in preserving his saints. Concerning their salvation, Paul told the Corinthian church that it was Jesus who would, quote, sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are concerned about bearing guilt, then you should know that God sent Jesus to pay not just for the sins that you committed before coming to Christ, but for all of your sin, past, present, and future. That is why he can keep you guiltless until the end. It does not mean that you will be sinless until the end. The Corinthian church is certainly exhibit A. They did not remain sinless until the end. In fact, almost everything they could get wrong, they did. It means that God will never again hold your sin against you because it has been completely paid, fully atoned. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 explains it like this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His work on the cross did not just wipe away past sins. He perfected you for all time. That's a pretty strong statement. Remember, God has spoken about your salvation in terms of an unbreakable covenant. God does not break his promises like we often do. The new covenant was established by Christ in the New Testament, and it was ratified in his blood, but the best place to learn about the terms of the new covenant is by reading what God promised about it long before it ever arrived, way back in the Old Testament books of prophecy. And there are many different passages I could go to right now to express this to you. For the sake of time, I have pared it down to just one. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, speaking of the new covenant it says, I will make an, with them an everlasting covenant. What kind? One that lasts forever. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. Now notice that the promise here is that God will not turn away from them and that God will cause them 
not to turn away from him. He will do that by giving them a genuine fear of God that will ensure that he will indeed continue in relationship with them. I'm not sure how it could be more clear, but maybe it could be. Romans chapter 11, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, if God has given you gifts of faith and repentance and has called you to salvation, who are you to give them back? He will not receive them. God's word says that you can't give them back. They are irrevocable. Or what about Paul's assurance to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Pay attention here. Paul insists that your salvation did not originate from you, and therefore it does not ultimately depend on you, and he is the one who will work in you and bring it to completion. But you might ask, doesn't that mean that we are completely passive in that process? I mean, if God does all the work, then why bother with growing closer to him? Why bother with sanctification at all? Well, Paul answers that question in the very next chapter, Philippians chapter 2, 11 through thir- or 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a very important verse that you are called to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comma, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his own good pleasure. Of course, you must work out your salvation. Of course, you must battle sin. Of course, you must grow in obedience. And all true Christians will do that because God is the one behind the scenes working in you. One of my favorite scenes from Pilgrim's Progress is taken in the house of the interpreter. Uh, There is a scene where Pilgrim is shown a small fire that is built up against a wall. And the interpreter's house is just this amazing place where there's all these different skits going on, and he's interpreting for them so that there's a theological point that Christian is observing and understanding. And one of them is of this fire. And there's this little fire in this fireplace, and there's a guy standing there like a total jerk who keeps filling up this bucket and dumping it on the, water, on the fire, trying as hard as he can to put it out. And the guy Christian is like, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. But the fire never goes out. Why does the fire never go out? Well, then the interpreter takes him around to the other side of the wall and shows him that there is somebody back there that keeps putting oil underneath at the base of the flame. And that is what your salvation is like. You are to burn like that fire, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, trying to reject all of the temptations and trials that come against you. But it is God working behind the scenes of that wall, providing oil to keep you burning. That fire continues not because of the fire itself, but because of the one behind the fire. But I think there's much more to this that needs to be addressed. You see, God's reputation is on the line here with salvation. Does Jesus finish what he starts or not? Does God keep his promises or not? Does God keep covenant or does he break it? Does God fail? Consider the promises that Jesus makes in verses like this. John chapter 6, verse 39 through 40. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What is the goal? What is the mission? What is the purpose that Jesus came for? So that he would lose none of the elect and that every one of them would end up in heaven. And he continues and says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks 
on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, look at that closely. Clearly, the mission is to raise up all of them. But notice in verse 40, he says that I will. I will is promissory language. That is the language that declares it must occur or Jesus is breaking his promise. If Jesus says he will do something, he will do it. He will not give up. He will not fail. In John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus further hammers home this point by saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Sometimes I play this game with my kids where I will take something that, that they are interested in and I will hold it in my hand and I will squeeze my fist really tightly and I will just hold it like this and see if they can open the fingers of my hand and receive their toy or their thing that they want. And it's fun because they can't do it. And it's fun because they, they try as hard as they can and my grip is just too strong for them. Now Ace is probably getting close and eventually I will fall short in my capabilities of holding fast whatever is in my hand but as Jesus says in these verses, nobody can break God's grasp on you. Nobody is strong enough to open his fingers. He will hold you fast. But the key is in the middle verse. Look at 28 again. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The question is, when does eternal life begin? When he says, I will give them eternal life, does it begin the moment you close your eyes of de in death? No, it begins the moment you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, there's a million ways I could defend that claim, but let me just take one moment to go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 to show this to you. Here we find it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When is this talking about? Your present life. Set your minds on things above, not on things of earth. When is this talking about? Clearly, not about heaven. He's talking about your present life. For you have died, past tense, and your life, present tense, is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, the one that you currently have in Christ, is hidden with Christ in God, which means that the only way for your eternal life to end is for God himself to cease to exist. I would argue that there is no greater guarantee in the entire universe than the one we read in these verses. Let's keep digging and see what Peter has to tell us about, about all this. He defines salvation this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, there is so much in this passage that it would take a month of sermons to really examine it closely, but let me just make five quick and very simple observations that are important and pertinent to what we're talking about right now. First, it says your inheritance is imperishable, meaning it can't die. Your inheritance, secondly, is undefiled, meaning it can't be messed up. Third, your inheritance is described as being unfading, meaning it can't diminish. 
Fourth, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Focus on the word here, kept. It's not going anywhere. It's the best bank in the universe or beyond it. And fifth, your inheritance is guarded not by your power, but by the power of God himself, which means there is nobody who can scheme well enough or fight hard enough to take it away, even you. We could go back through all the metaphors of Scripture and see the absurdity of the reversal of salvation. I mean, the Bible tells us that we are born again, but it never tells us that you can be unborn again. We are told that you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. But it never says that, behold, the new can disappear and the old can return. We are told that we can receive new life, but we are never told that that life will come to an end or could be lost. In fact, as we've seen today, the Scripture teaches the exact opposite, that it is hidden with Christ and God. But I want to land on one more thing in order to close out this argument in a way that hopefully will help you think about God's preserving power in our salvation well. If you still have your fingers in Romans 8, jump down now to verse 35. Still in the context of salvation, we read these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the confidence and assurance that Paul has that you and I will be more than conquerors. It is not because of who we are, but because of God's love for us. We have been loved by God in a way that we cannot be separated from Him by anything that is in, on this list. And also, if you notice, by adding that little phrase, nor anything else in all creation, it intrinsically means that we can't be separated by anything that's not on this list, including you. Nothing can separate you from God's love. This is excellent news because, as the old song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If it were up to you or if it were up to me to keep our salvation, we would fail. But by the grace of God, the Father who elected us and the Son who atoned for us and the Spirit who drew us will all work together to ensure that they will not lose a single sheep. Which brings us now to our sixth question. Well, then what about those who do walk away from the Lord? What about those sheep who do seem to wander away? How does that work out? Are there any examples in the Bible of people who do depart from the church, who do reject their profession? Well, absolutely there are. Think of people like Judas or Demas. Those are the first that come to my mind. Well, then how does this happen? Why is it that somebody like Judas will walk around on a multi-year camping trip with the Messiah and then suffer many difficulties only to eventually turn away and betray him? Why is it that somebody like Demas will suffer alongside Paul for a time only to be enticed by the goods of this world and turn aside from the Lord completely? Why do some professing Christians come to church for a few years and then disappear back into the world wanting nothing to do with Christ? The answer is simple, because those people were never truly saved to begin with. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 tells us this very thing about the people who departed from that church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
But they went out that it might became, become plain that they are all not of us. Now, why did they leave? Because they were not of us. They might have been with us. They might have said the right words. They might have attended services and been baptized and prayed and gave money and served. But categorically, even from our perspective, though, they were inside. From God's perspective, they were outside the whole time. We didn't know that, but God did. And to go one step further, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, that there are many people who are going to be shocked at the judgment day because they really believed that they were saved. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that the works that they list here are far greater than any of the things that you would have done in your life. These people are going to go to their graves professing the name of Jesus, but they don't actually know him or love him. These people are described with two distinct characteristics. First, they are workers of lawlessness. That is to say that they are not growing in sanctification. They are not fighting sin. They are living just like they did before they professed salvation in the first place. And secondly, notice that Jesus tells them that he never knew them. It does not say that he knew them for a time. He came to know them and befriend them when they prayed a prayer. And then he distanced himself after they began sinning. There was never a relationship there in the first place. Those who do not persevere reveal what kind of tree they are by what kind of fruit they produce. If you are a professing Christian, you should always be growing in the Lord. You should not be the same as you were last year. Life results in growth. God's preserving hand in your life is working in you to sanctify you. And if you look back over the last several years and you say there is no spiritual growth, that is a concerning sign. And you need to examine yourself to know whether you are truly in the faith. This is one of the reasons why church discipline is of such extreme value to the church, because it is by that tool that the, church hel- the Lord has helped us to determine and declare who is and who is not truly walking with the Lord. Which now brings us to our final question. What are the practical outworkings of believing the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? Well, there are so many that we have already touched on. What I'm going to do is just do a brief recap of those. First, you, are not, you no longer have to be in fear that God is looking for ways to disown you from his family. God doesn't want you to leave. He is not trying to find ways to get you out. He loves you, and it is his prerogative to hold you fast. Secondly, you can trust that God is going to help you in your battle with sin because he is fully invested in your salvation. Are you struggling with sin? Are you battling sin? Are you trying your best to fight sin? Well, He is going to work in you to grow you, and he is going to bring you through because he has committed to you. Third, you can have full assurance of your salvation knowing that all of your sin, past, present, and future, was paid for by Christ at the cross. You do not have to pay for a single bit of it, nor could you. And you can have full assurance knowing that if you continue on in the faith, then it is evidence that he has indeed purchased your soul. And finally, you should be humbled that God would take a person that consistently falls short and he promises that even though you are prone to wander away from him, he will never wander away from you. With all these things in mind, let's finally answer our big question. Does God always preserve the salvation of his people 
Absolutely yes, 100% of the time. And that is why all true Christians will persevere till the end, and not any of them will ever lose their salvation. So to close out this series, I want to simply ask that if you have any questions or concerns that have arisen as we've walked through this series together, that you would talk with me about them. And I would ask that uh, if you would like to talk about those things today, I will be here after the service as long as you want to uh, discuss these things. I love talking about them because I, just like you, am a sinner. And the only way I have for salvation is through the grace of God. And I have a good Savior who sought me and bought me and who will keep me to the end. And that is what God does for his people, and that is cause to rejoice. So I hope that these six sermons have caused a deeper appreciation and a deeper love for the God who has accomplished your salvation. And I hope that now all of us can join with Jonah and proclaim, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that from beginning to end, you are the one who carries out the work of our salvation. I thank you that you are sovereign over all of it. And Lord, I pray that you would help everyone in this room who is currently struggling with sin to rely on Christ for their sanctification, who would look to him and say, I need your help desperately. But in the midst of that struggle, they would not fear. They would not, uh, they would not be concerned that you are looking at them and trying to find an exit clause. Lord, I thank you that you have set your affection on your people forever. Please help us to be a people who delight in the fact that you have saved us, that you have sought us, and that you have bought us with the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. It's in His name that we pray all of these things. Amen.